Hi, this is Brandon, and welcome to the Crucible of Thought podcast. And today I'm going to be presenting part three of my paper, Becoming Affirming. There's going to be at least one more session after this, but I'm working through it in reasonably sized chunks. So today we're going to be talking about identity versus behavior, transgender identity, cultural expectations, and also pronouns. So changing topics from the last segment, I want to recognize that many discussions of LGBTQ matters shortly turn to discussions of behavior. And I believe it's critical to recognize two demarcations, one between identity and behavior, and the other between righteous and unrighteous behavior. I don't think those are the same thing. Now, identity is usually fixed, and that's clearly shown by science that the vast majority of homosexuals cannot change their sexual preferences. Even the foremost, quote, conversion therapy, quote, advocates finally have admitted that it fails most of the time. A group called Exodus International tried for 37 years, and they finally disbanded and admitted that sexual attractions cannot be changed in most cases. And in the paper, there are links to the articles in the New York Times and the Atlantic magazine from 2013 and 2015, respectively. So this has been out for a while. Uh, and also a quote that says, Exodus CEO Alan Chambers reported that 99.9% of people who engaged in reparative therapy did not change their orientation. So only one out of a thousand. And that's based on an article in the taskforce.org also linked in my paper. And finally, suicide rates among LGBTQ individuals, which are already quite high due to societal pressures, double following conversion therapy. And that's from an article in the Williams Institute underneath UCLA. Again, linked in my paper. Well, misguided conversion attempts have often led gay and lesbian individuals to attempt a heterosexual marriage in the belief that it would cure them and result in healing from homosexuality. But in reality, the vast majority of those heterosexual marriages fail, leaving behind wrecked adult lives and deeply damaged children. A study at Cornell University concluded that, quote, there is no credible evidence that sexual orientation can be changed through therapeutic intervention. Most accounts of such change are akin to instances of, quote, faith healing. There is also powerful evidence that trying to change a person's sexual orientation can be extremely harmful. Taken together, the overwhelming consensus among psychologists and psychiatrists who have studied conversion therapy or treated patients who are struggling with their sexual orientation is that therapeutic intervention cannot change sexual orientation, a position echoed by all major professional organizations in the field, including the American Psychological Association. Furthermore, they said... Quote, we identified 47 peer-reviewed studies that met our criteria for adding to knowledge about whether conversion therapy can alter sexual orientation without causing harm. Thirteen of those studies included primary research. Of those, 12 concluded that conversion therapy is ineffective and or harmful, finding links to depression, suicidality, anxiety, social isolation, and decreased capacity for intimacy. Only one study concluded that sexual orientation change efforts could succeed, although only in a minority of its participants, and the study has several limitations. Quote, its entire sample self-identified as religious, and it is based on self-reports, which can be biased and unreliable. So all of that's a direct quote from 
uh, study in Cornell, and their link is in my paper. So for me, from such studies and from actually discussing these matters with gay people, I conclude that A, gay or queer identity is real for many people, and B, I personally am utterly unqualified to make any assessment of the truth of their assertion. Only God knows what is in their hearts, how their minds are built to work, and what wounding may, or likely may not, contribute to their identity. After carefully considering a multitude of scriptures and factual information in the books that I listed previously, and my own pursuit of the Lord regarding the scriptures, I have come to believe that the Bible is not at all explicit in condemnation of loving, consensual, committed, monogamous, homosexual, marital relationships, or sexual acts. Rather, I believe that the Bible is, in those famous verses about homosexuality, definitively explicit in condemning unloving, non-consensual, uncommitted, and non-monogamous relationships of any kind, homosexual or heterosexual. In fact, I believe that if you describe an appropriate marriage and sexuality between a man and a woman— Well, every aspect of that relationship, other than the specific genders involved, ought to be also modeled in any homosexual relationship. Therefore, any form, whether gay or straight, of violent, abusive, controlling, or casual sexuality is clearly addressed in Scripture and opposed by the Lord as violating His core principles of A, selfless and sacrificial love, and B, modeling the depth and permanence of His relationship with mankind through our relationships with one another. And this is not dependent on gender identity or sexuality identity. I think it's particularly important to understand whether LGBTQ plus people can represent the Imago Dei, the image of God. A rather sizable fraction, and some surveys say 30% or more, of Gen Y youths no longer assume binary sexuality or binary gender pronouns. In talking with many teens and 20-somethings, I personally find this statistic to be very believable. Now, this is deeply distressing to many in the conservative church today who see such choices as, well, deeply deceived and also a tangible threat to both the stability of our culture and also the stability of our entire nation. And for me, the book Sex Difference in Christian Theology, Male, Female, and Intersex in the Image of God, by Megan K. DeFranza, was very helpful in understanding some of this topic, and I highly recommend that you read it. Now, here's the problem. I've carefully listened to the arguments from traditional conservative Christians regarding gender issues. In fact, I grew up with them and was deeply comfortable with them for 50 years. In recent discussions about the topic, triggered, in fact, by the presence of a transgender person at a gathering of my very conservative family, I heard fear for the stability of everything for which our religion stands. I heard warnings of the risks of creeping radical changes to our society. I heard caution about accepting demonic lies about the very nature of mankind and man's representation of the image of God. Plenty of scriptures were quoted to support traditional roles of men and women made in the image of God designed to represent him to the world. But I find myself unsatisfied at these answers and arguments. For one thing, they all depend on a specific set of interpretations of those scriptures, which, although they're widely shared within conservative Christian circles, are hardly universal across denominations and around the world in different cultures. As such, 
those those arguments seem to desire to avoid wrestling with principles that are deeply difficult to confront. There is an element of, well, that was settled previously, and we cannot consider any alternative beliefs. For another thing, to me at least, most of the arguments feel as if they're tinged with two unholy spirits, a fear of change and xenophobia, generally defined as the fear of that which is unlike us. Those fears are never holy. The arguments all seem to appeal to the desire to exclude the other or that which is alien to us and to hold on to the comfortable and the familiar at all costs. Well, this is all very understandable. Clear gender roles and appearances are something with which we are already deeply familiar. It's a comfortable place to exist, and it's simpler by far to just exclude that which is other. We'd rather not wrestle with the unfamiliar and what looks broken to us. Well, these gender issues seem to strike at the heart of a foundational principle in some doctrine structures, um, and that of the idea that God created males and females, and he gave them very specific boundaries for their roles and behaviors, all for the ultimate purpose of better showing his character to the universe. But that begs the question, are God's people actually showing God's true nature and character to the universe through strict adherence to physical norms? Well, fundamentally, God is spirit, not flesh. And Jesus' incarnation was temporary for the purpose of showing to us that he deeply and fully identified with all our pain and failings. So it seems strange to argue that our physical manifestations are instructive to the universe as regarding God's nature. Secondly, there's no explicit female component to the specific revelation of God to man. It's not God, the mother, the daughter, and the Holy Spirit. In fact, any such suggestions, often by liberal Christians, evoke howls of outrage from conservative Christians. And finally, regarding the revelation of God's character to our fellow man, it seems strange to me to suggest that the appearance of humans as male and female can show anything whatsoever new to other humans in almost any and every given culture or nation who are quite well aware of the differences in the first place. Certainly no such tutoring is needed. Note that the creation account in Genesis describes the Godhead as saying, Let us make mankind in our image. Given that the Godhead existed, at that point, completely without physical manifestations and would not be incarnated for thousands of years in the future, there could be no physical image to represent. Clearly, the image, quote-unquote, is of a spirit. Only a spirit can actually represent a spirit. Thus, the creation of Adam and Eve was the breathing into being of a pair of unique spirits that God clothed in flesh. It was the very spirit beings that were in God's image. The human bodies were merely convenient carriers for their spirits, designed for perfect compatibility with the earth that God also created, and given with the ability to reproduce after their own physical manifestations, and for God to imbue those physical offspring with more spiritual beings. And furthermore, our bodies were made from dust and shall return to dust. Again, it's hard to argue that something earthly and tainted by such physical reality can fully represent the eternal spiritual God that we were created to represent. We also know that after our natural bodies die and return to the dust, we'll be given new bodies, 
and that marriage and sexuality will be unknown in that afterlife. As the Bible describes our new glorified bodies as our eternal state and perfectly suited for life in the intimate presence of Christ, it seems further strange to assert that our temporal earthly bodies are the ultimate representation of the Godhead. So the doctrinal idea that men and women each represent specific and necessary aspects of God's character, uh, which is called complementarianism, is relatively recent, and it was formed largely as a reaction against feminism and the increasing role of women in society and in the church. And if you study the history, you'll find that to be true. However, complementarianism inherently relies upon treating the physical body as the actual image of God. The rules and roles are inherently and explicitly tied to the physical form of the human flesh that's wrapped around the eternal souls and spirits involved. But Paul tells us that there is no male or female, just like there is no Jew or Greek in Galatians 3.28. In so arguing, Paul, in modern language, is implicitly saying that genetic specifics, both gender and ethnicity, are not relevant. What is housed by the flesh is what matters, not the flesh itself. Complementarianism tries to limit how one can serve or act or worship based on the specific genitalia or chromosomes expressed in the temporal body. Basically, it forces external limits on an indwelling soul and spirit. But if there's no male or female or ethnicity in the spirit realm, in God the Creator himself, or in our eternal bodies... Why can, or why should, that genderless spirit which comes from him be limited by man in how it can express its design and its calling in the process of serving and worshiping its creator while we inhabit these earthly bodies made of dust? Well, this thought process, not surprisingly, leads to wondering about the queer and gender fluid movement. If the spirit within the human body is the thing which actually represents the let us make man in our image, God, then what is the basis of the non-affirming concern about queer and non-binary individuals? Well, the paradox of the ship of Theseus seems very relevant here. If you begin to incrementally replace the boards of an aging wooden sailing ship, at what point is it no longer the original ship? If every board is eventually replaced over time, what happens? Does it cease being the same ship? If so, exactly when? And this question leads to other questions. Is the ship merely its specific physical manifestation or the idea of it? Will changing part of it affect its identity? If so, how much change is acceptable? Well, in like manner... If you replace a human being's body parts, or merely remove them, or build new ones from rearranged flesh or with the targeted application of specific hormones, are you changing the human identity within the individual? I would argue no. And let's look at some specific real and non-LGBTQ examples that may help make the point. For example... Would anyone claim that a quadruple amputee is less a representation of God than a fully abled human, just because he cannot touch or carry or walk, even though God describes himself in various scriptures as walking or touching or carrying? Or how about a deaf or blind human, when God describes himself as seeing and hearing everything? 
How about the dumb who cannot speak? Are they incapable of representing a God who defines himself as the living word and as speaking to mankind? How about the barren when God charged mankind to reproduce? So where exactly might one draw the line and say that a human is somehow no longer capable of fully representing God? Would anyone argue that such humans are only ever able to be partial representatives? Well, surely the standard then is not physical, and it never can be. The standard is more appropriately how we represent God by the character that we put on display to the universe. It's notable that we humans alone among all creatures have this amazing ability to represent God's character, not because we have bodies, not because we have genders, not because we have specific genitalia, not because we reproduce, not even because we're somewhat self-aware or can communicate. Dolphins and primates share those characteristics, all of them with humans, yet we don't argue that they represent God. Now, the difference is the spirit within us, which is a specific imbuement from God himself, and it's unique to each person, and yet it's all directly from him. And it's our choice of how closely we represent God's character by our own character that is the exact and the sole witness to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms, as well as witnessing to the lost humans who walk among us. Now, interestingly, the idea of genital modification is at least as ancient as the Bible itself, which addresses specifically eunuchs in the books of Esther, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Daniel, Matthew, and Acts. Even Jesus himself recognized in Matthew 19.12 that some eunuchs are man-made and others are self-made. And it says, For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by people, and there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who is able to accept this, let him accept it. And even more tellingly, Jesus starts by acknowledging that some eunuchs are God-made. Now, it's important that the Lord specifically honors eunuchs who were considered by Hebrew society to be deficient because of their inability to produce an heir. And he honored them with special assurances that they have a place in his kingdom if they otherwise honor him with their lives, such as in Isaiah 56. In other words, the condition of their bodies is irrelevant to God's acceptance of them. And Isaiah 56 verses 3 through 5 says, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. Nor let the eunuch say, Behold, I'm a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant, to them I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial, and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name which will not be cut off. So God here is explicitly tying his acceptance of them to their heart attitudes and their choice to follow after God. Yes, he is honoring their choice to follow the law, but recognize at that time that the law was the only way to please God. The Spirit had not yet been given, and justification by faith was still in the future. As Galatians 3, 26-29 says, For you are all sons and daughters of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. 
There's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. Now, the argument is commonly made that this passage is only referring to the equality of salvation, not to all gender roles. But it's educational, and I think very important, that verse 26 specifically says, you are all sons and daughters. And then verse 29 says that both male and female are Abraham's heirs according to the promise. Well, this was a shocking concept to anyone living at the time, when inheritance was typically only to male children. This passage was carefully making it clear to the readers of that day that physical genders, both physical genders, have full rights and privileges that traditionally were imputed only to the male gender. In fact, the only distinctive that is necessary for this imputation is faith. Furthermore, regarding modifying the body's sexual organs, later in Galatians 6.12, Paul addresses the circumcision making it quite clear that specific man-made bodily modification of the male genitalia cannot be used to establish or deny a position in the body of Christ. It seems odd to first accept this verse, but then to place a limit on the extent of the applicability of the modification before one is no longer welcome to participate in the kingdom. If removing the foreskin does not affect one's status, why would removing more or even all of the penis matter? It's not as if having or not having a penis, or having or not having breasts, or even having both, is somehow fatally damaging the image of a spirit-only God. 1 Timothy 6.16 says, Who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see? To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And John 4.24 says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And again, Jesus' own words in Matthew 19 and John 4.24, as well as many prophetic statements in the Old Testament, imply that gender, in other words, the presence or absence of some genitalia, is irrelevant to the Lord's acceptance of one's worship. So, beyond the genitalia, then, what of the matter of how one presents themselves as male or female or even neither gender? If the condition of the genitals is not a factor in how we might judge one's acceptability to God, does one's behavior or dress do that? In other words, is cross-dressing or other queer behavior a disqualification? Is this failing to represent the nature and character of God? Another type of common body modification related to traditional gender roles is worth considering. For generations, mastectomy has been a common surgical procedure to address certain diseases. However, mastectomy is also rather common for men who have gynecomastia, the overdevelopment of breast tissue in males. Many women choose voluntary breast reduction surgery for non-gender issues, in some cases to address physical problems, but many other times for body image reasons. And of course, breast enlargement surgery is well known for women, mostly voluntary for body image reasons. It's interesting that most Christians readily accept every one of those surgery procedures, whether voluntary or not, without addressing image of God implications. True, they do not attempt to cross traditional gender lines, but they're equally potent in changing the God-given body shape in many cases. Is there some practical line after which it's suddenly sinful to change one's appearance?
So let's talk about cultural expectations. One might well argue that our choice of appearance as grooming or makeup or clothing is an even stronger qualifier than our bodily condition or changes to it. After all, Isaiah 56, 3-5 and Galatians 4 and plenty of other scriptures discuss our manner of representing the Father and worshiping Him, essentially our faith, as the primary determinant of our relationship with Him. But it would be odd to argue that something that's deeply cultural, i.e. something for which acceptability is based on a particular time and place, is somehow important to God. For example, long hair was a positive sign for Samson, and Absalom was praised for being the complete standard of beauty, and 2 Samuel 14.26 describes him cutting his hair only once a year. Clearly, there was something culturally different then by the time that Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 11, saying that long hair is a shame to a man. Is one of those passages errant? Or is it possible that the writers of each passage were simply speaking to what is acceptable to their respective culture, and not defining sinful codes of grooming? Clothing, too, is deeply cultural, and yet it's used by many fundamentalist Christians as proof of holiness. But obviously the original standard from God was nakedness. Many theologians have observed that Adam and Eve were in fact perfectly clothed by God originally that their very bodies were the clothing wrapped around their spirits. And once they fell, removing themselves from God's covering, he graciously fashioned another layer to protect them and to salve their shame, thus teaching them about clothing as a shame remedy. In fact, in what may be the earliest written book of the Bible, Job describes his own creation in chapter 10, verse 11, and recognizes that God clothed him with skin and flesh and bones and sinew. And he writes, Your hands fashioned and made me altogether, yet would you destroy me? Remember that you've made me as clay, yet would you turn me into dust again? Did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese, clothe me with skin and flesh, and intertwine me with bones and tendons? You have granted me life and goodness, and your care has guarded my spirit. So Job understood his own self as being that selfness that is resident within or clothed by his physical frame and form. Many verses describe man as clothed in various things other than garments, righteousness, faith, honor, power, garments of salvation, surely figurative rather than literal, and even dishonor and shame. In fact, the description of the godly woman in Proverbs 31 verse 25 says, strength and dignity are her clothing. In fact, Perhaps the best description of this concept is, again, Paul, writing in 2 Corinthians 5, 1-4, and referring to the physical body. And he says, For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked." For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. In another telling verse, also often quoted by fundamentalists, Peter writes in 1 Peter 3, verses 3 through 4, that beauty is a function of the character of a woman, not her external clothing or ornaments. 
Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. Furthermore, we cannot set aside the cultural expectations about gender-specific clothing styles, which drift from era to era and from society to society and from culture to culture. What would be normal to some African tribes, where the men literally wear only pointed gourds on their penis, would be quite shocking in any American situation, just as a woman wearing a modern American blouse would have been scandalous to Paul. And on the other extreme are Muslim burqas, which ironically are offensive to many Christians. So with that context, it's hard to assert that any specific choice of attire is a reasonable, undeniable mark of righteousness or acceptability to God. These things are highly culturally relative, and thus it is impossible to say that God approves of this or that style or disapproves of all others. Otherwise, we would be forced to argue that the styles in vogue in any era and conditions but our own were sinful. In fact, the only remaining acceptable gender qualifier seems to be that to be acceptable to God and fellow man, a given individual within a specific society and culture and in possession of a specific human set of chromosomes must necessarily conform to that societal instance's expectations for the behavior and the dress and the style. And put more concisely, it would say that if you don't conform, you're damned. Well, this would be an unacceptable relativism, implying that some behavior and clothing is sinful here and now, but not in other situations, or that some is holy, but not in other situations. And that breaks the principle that God himself is unchanging and his precepts are equally unchanging. Thus, we must either allow that our understanding of his precepts might be too strictly applied to clothing and behavior, and even the form of the body, or we must decide that it's okay to create our own rules and precepts to layer atop his. And Jesus himself castigated the Pharisees for doing exactly that, calling them whitewashed sepulchers or tombs for their focus on appearances and behavior over attention to the condition of their hearts. It's important to note that today's culture, at least outside of conservative circles, that is, places fairly little value in the specifics of dress and personal appearance. The average non-Christian may think that someone's choices of appearance or dress are unusual or personally unpleasant, but are quite willing to accept the other's choices. It's no longer appropriate in our culture to argue that failing to dress or appear in rigid gender-specific manners is culturally unacceptable. It simply isn't. Now, that's hard for conservatives to stomach, but it's a fact of life today in America. Now, I painfully and keenly recognize that this entire construct of thinking runs directly counter to generations of conservative thinking. It is distressing to consider that one of our most cherished ways of being instantly able to assess the value and condition of another human being is, in fact, not necessarily scriptural. But I suggest that, instead, it should be deeply freeing At a very real and practical level, it frees us from focusing on the external markers and allows us to focus immediately on the spirit and soul of those with whom we're interacting. The Bible is full of language urging us to look deeper than the surface, and yet we typically find it very hard to overlook 
what is right in front of us. That process is made quite harder when we're convinced that the person standing in front of us must be truly lost and damned because of how they modified their body or how they dress or their affect or their choice of pronouns. But if we can see that God cares little about such things, we can release ourselves from judging their souls based on appearances and focus instead on the unseen and unspoken. If I'm convinced that, let's say, a transgender person is necessarily damned, or at least living in unrepentant sin and in danger of being damned, because they violated God's original design for the human body, or maybe that a queer individual is necessarily damned because of their gender fluidity and their insistence upon pronouns that don't readily match their appearance, well, I'll approach ministering to them quite differently than if I cannot so simply assume anything about their spirit. Rather, if I cannot use those outward markers to assess the condition of their inner being, I will find myself needing to listen much more closely, both to their own self-revelation and also to the Holy Spirit in discernment. I will not start by judging them. And this is extremely consistent with quite a bit of scriptural imperative to judge not. In fact, it is interesting to read Paul's writing in Romans 1, where he concluded the chapter by listing a long set of sinful behaviors, notably including perverse sexual behaviors, immediately followed in Romans 2 by his harsh rebuke of the Romans' church for judging others for the same kinds of sins that they themselves actually participate in. And to me, he seems to be making a case that grace towards others is far more important to God than a sinful behavior. He even goes on to specifically address circumcision, how genitalia are not a factor in the individual's welcome into the kingdom. And commentators have observed that Paul is specifically taking this approach to very frankly address the new and growing Roman church's fear and hatred of the Gentile aliens among them. And he makes his final point in Romans 2 saying, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. So the overall theme of the introduction to Romans is that genetics and culture are not what makes a person acceptable to God. It's the condition of their hearts that does. So I also want to turn for a moment to pronouns. Quite a bit of concern exists in conservative Christian circles today about the trend towards non-binary and gender-swapped pronouns. And I personally find that I need to repent of my formal response about pronouns. Let me start with a story. About 35 years ago, when I was in college, my girlfriend's roommate was a veterinary student. And not long after starting school, she legally changed her last name from Teets to something like Smith. And she was just tired of constant jokes about her ample breasts, and especially so as she entered the vet profession where dealing with animal teats would lead to those jokes being a constant affront. I suspected that her parents were deeply offended that their own daughter would reject the family's last name. But at the same time, I understood her situation. The combination of letters used to refer to her inherently conflicted with something about her core self. And as a result, she has to be called something different. Now, were her parents to insist upon continuing to use her last name, which was now offensive to her, it would be a practical verbal assault on her each and every time. 
and a rejection of something that mattered deeply to her about her own identity. While I do fully understand that gender pronouns are a little bit different, as they appear to refer to something that has historically helped to undergird our societal norms about gender and relationships. Denying someone's request to use different pronouns is not just a personal matter, it's perceived as societal protection. But I also have to recognize that this assertion about protecting society from change carries with it an insistence about the nature of our society. That resistance to change implies that the disappearing culture is somehow objectively right and proper. But as noted in many examples that I've previously said, that specific nature being protected is ultimately deeply cultural instead of objective. It's based on a set of norms that exist in a given time, not universally over every age. Even though it's deeply embedded and fairly long-standing, it still is cultural. That is to say, not entirely objective. Language and the specifics of identity absolutely do shift over time as understandings change. As a very practical example, it wasn't that long ago that black men were almost universally called boy, or worse still the N-word, by a significant number of white Americans. Or as another demonstration, there are numerous cultures around the planet today that accept, and in some cases revere, non-binary genders, as part of their accepted society. Places like Samoa, Native American cultures, Mexico, Madagascar, Albania, Nepal, Thailand, Australia, and Indonesia. Essentially, every continent has at least one culture that fully accepts and includes individuals that do not identify as male or female. It's certainly not as common as binary gender societies, but it's clearly and demonstrably wrong for someone to say, everyone knows there's only two genders. It's just not true. Yes, a change to such a deeply embedded matter like he-she or male-female is disruptive, at least in America, but it is not inherently wrong just because it's disruptive. I have personally concluded that while these alternate pronouns definitely make me personally uncomfortable, I find that when I willingly choose to accept an individual's preferences about how I interact with them, I'm honoring them as individuals without violating anything fundamental about humanity at large. As noted above in discussing the image of God in transgender individuals, the important element of any individual is their soul and the spirit that lie beneath their visible characteristics, and in this case, their preferred pronouns. Nothing at all that refers to their outer person affects their eternal character or their acceptability to the Lord. Note that, for example, by referring to an apparent biological male as she or her, or to an apparent biological female as he or him, or maybe to either of them as they or them, I'm not referring to their genetics or their genitals. Hopefully, neither of which I can I could even directly observe in any case, and I have no proof that I or they are correct in either case. I'm instead referring to their personal identity, just as calling my girlfriend's roommate Miss Smith instead of Miss Teets. At some level, it's not much different than when Elizabeth decides to use Beth instead of Liz or Betty. Nicknames. So how I feel about such a change in reference is entirely up to me. I can allow myself to angrily rage about it, 
where I can relax and appreciate the relationship that results from honoring them personally. And then I have an opportunity to share the love of God with them as we grow in relationship. So that's all I want to talk about for today. In the next session, we'll be talking about grooming, about the breakdown in society, about whether we're accurately representing God. I want to touch on that a little bit more. And how this whole thing is hard, but I'm finding it very full of grace. And then I'll wrap it up. So thanks for coming along on this this very wild ride with me. It's been an interesting season for me to be learning so much, and it's definitely challenging a lot of my comfort zones. But like I said, I'm finding a lot of grace in this thing. Now, if you're interested in being notified about the next episode of this podcast, then subscribe to it on your device. Uh, You can also find us on anchor.fm as Crucible of Thought. And you can also go on the crucibleofthought.com website and you'll see several different ways to follow us. Uh, I hope this has been useful to you and we'll talk again soon.